So, Berta, let me tell you a story about a client that I had many, many years ago. It, it was a very informative client to me about what heroin is and what Percocet is, what Vicodin is, all these kinds of pills. I'd heard about it, but didn't really know much about it uh, in terms of people abusing uh, the substances. You know, I'd seen movies about heroin addiction, and, mm. and uh, but I and I was like, well, you know, I don't even really know what it does to people. Right. I had a client who came to me, and he had a long history of problems with uh, pills and with heroin. And uh, his story was thus: he had a violent father and mm. was traumatized a lot growing up, and. You know, lived a pretty typical life in Seattle and had a typical job and typical yeah. friends and typical kind of lifestyle, but chronically not feeling so good, but, you know, getting by. Like in their 20s, 30s? Yeah, 20s. 20s. And early 20s. Okay. And he uh, goes in to have a procedure done uh, mm -hmm. medically and they give him pain pills mm. to, uh, you know, deal with the pain post-surgery. He takes the pills, uh, and immediately upon returning home, because they tell him, like, you're going to be in a lot of pain. Right. So make sure you take a really good dose when you get home, because it's going to be a lot of pain. Don't skip it. So he goes home, and he's kind of miserable at the pain, but he takes, you know, picks the big, the, the big dose, and for the very first time in his life, he feels okay. Wow. He feels normal. He doesn't have those racing thoughts. He doesn't have those intrusive thoughts of shame oh. and what's wrong with you or... Everyone hates wow. you, you know, suddenly yeah. he's just cool as a cucumber and he suddenly realizes like when your water in your ear suddenly pops out, right? Yeah. Like and you can hear. Yeah. Oh, this is what hearing is like. I've been dealing with this clogged ear this whole time. This is what it's like to actually feel normal. And he said that he said, for the first time, I felt like I I felt the way everyone else looked. Everyone else looked like they were fine. <laughs> right. Everyone else acted like their life was going okay, like they weren't constantly struggling with self-esteem yeah. or shame or uh, psychological pain from the past or, you know, PTSD-like symptoms and distress and, like, spikes in anger and, and uh, you know, deep insecurities. First time he felt fine. Every all those feelings were gone. And he immediately thought, I need to be on these pills all the time. There's, right. there's just really no uh, other alternative. And uh, he might have, e I don't remember, but he might have even been to therapy before, and that didn't help. He might have even been on other psychotropics like mm. you know SSRIs, and they didn't help. So then he uh, starts to seek medication. So he, he slowly yes. figures pre-internet. So he's slowly kind of figuring out, well, if I report I'm in pain, then right. I get more pills. And this is in the time when, uh, in the 90s, when they were just passing out these pills like candy, like, yeah. we, like we saw in the documentary, which we'll talk about in a second. Then he discovers that over time, he needs more of these pills to feel any right. kind of an effect. And maybe there's a time there where he can't get any pills and he realizes how crappy he feels. I mean, just utter... Uh, you know, so many <laughs> symptoms from withdrawal that he experienced when he couldn't get his hand on him, his hands on him. So he starts to go further out, further afield, it starts to search for physicians and prescribers that are uh, outside of Seattle and 
and is is really anxious and pretty much even though he's working his whole you know mental life is dominated by making sure that he stays he on top yeah. yeah then he is uh somehow he f- finds out that heroin is is a similar substance to mm-hmm. the pills that he's taking and is a lot easier to get you, uh, sure. you you can buy the pills uh illegally but heroin is is easy to find mm. and cheaper and so he's like okay takes heroin doesn't want to shoot it at first but eventually starts to shoot it cuz that's much you know quicker and more effective administration of the substance and again, he his tolerance is going up. He needs more and more, and he's spending more and more of his money. Now, you know, half of his paycheck is going towards it. Seventy five percent of his paycheck is going towards it. And he's like, "Okay, I got to stop." He tries to stop; it doesn't work. He tries to go to drug treatment, and you know, NA, mm-hmm. none of that works. The the it's so powerful. Not only the withdrawal symptoms, but also Jeez. the feeling of his trauma symptoms from his childhood cropping up when he is without the substance. Yeah, it's a double whammy. Yeah, he might experience some sustained periods of sobriety and abstinence, but um, maybe he's like, okay, I'm just going to smoke a lot of weed or I'm going to drink alcohol, but mm-hmm. it, you know, it doesn't really work the same way. And he finds himself needing more and more of the substance. You know, Maybe he loses his job. I don't, rem- I don't know. And... Then he turns he, he, to crime. He starts to try to get money. To, try to get money. So yeah. at first, it's petty things like shoplifting, bringing stuff in. You know, because back then you could you could steal stuff from Nordstrom, walk back in and take it and and just you know without a receipt because Nordstrom had right, this right, really right. good um, uh, customer service that they didn't ask any question. They just gave you cash. And basically, I could see someone like mentally justifying that, like, "Well, I'm returning the item." Yeah, <laughs> and it's Nordstrom. It's a giant company, yeah. and I they can do without this little bit of money, right? They seem to be doing okay. Yeah, the shareholders are doing okay, <laughs> and then it starts to escalate from there to you know car break-ins, and eventually to some severe crimes, which I won't go into to uh, you know avoid identifying this person, but um, some pretty severe crimes to get a lot of money in order to uh, sustain this uh, habit for him. All the while, he hates himself. Of course. There, at no point in this process is he like, yay, right. this is the life. This is like a, a rapper video or yeah. a gangster movie in which there's, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There's none of that. It's, oh, it's shame. It's, uh, you know, right. uh, trying to survive minute by minute, running from the law, terrified. This isn't like his family, you know... Is in business with the mob, so he grew up in it and grew up around it, and his uncles and cousins are in it. No, he just did this because he needs the money for the drug. Right. And all the time, just, you know, people start asking questions. He goes into denial. He has a very, uh, he kind of pushes himself into the background and doesn't really think about it because he can't. Because as right. soon as he starts thinking about it, then he starts to question it and he can't because there, he doesn't see any way out physically or psychologically. And eventually he gets caught. His, uh-huh. his crime spree went on for a while and he pretty much knew who was going to get caught. He turned himself in actually. Mm-hmm. And he uh, is convicted, goes into prison, goes through withdrawal symptoms which is really rough for him. Yeah, I think he gets some medical help with that. And 
as he's going into prison, he's actually happy because because this is a forced sobriety. Sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. And he's thinking, I don't, Man. you know, how many years I got to spend in here? Five years, ten years, and after that time, I'll get out and I'll be sober, and then I'll get my life back on track the way it was before. Yeah. And someone in the documentary said something like that, like. I, I'm going to jail, and either I'll get clean or I'll die, and I'm okay with either. <laughs> right. Well, either is better than yeah. what's happening. So this is just one story of opiate or opioid yeah. abuse, and there are many. And we'll get into them because I, I have a surprising – I know more people who have died from heroin or opioids than have died from COVID. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, do you know anyone who's died from COVID personally? Um, personally, I don't know. I know a lot of people have caught it and several have been very sick, but I don't know if any of them have died. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's died personally. Yeah. I, and, and I, I don't even know that many who, who've gotten it. I, I, everyone in my circle has been extremely, I do know a lot that's got it a but, lot in Colombia, and a lot, um, f- like a lot of people initially caught it in the area that were coworkers or or family members of coworkers. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I only know like one person out of wow. dozens of people <laughs> that I know. Yeah. And maybe other people got it. They didn't know they got yeah. it. But anyway. So, uh, and I think that's just reflective of how um, politically leaning and yeah. privileged my my circle is, right? Because if you have to work in a restaurant. But anyway, my point is, is that um, I know a lot more people who have died from personally, yeah, including yeah. clients who have died from heroin and opioids than I, I have from I was from COVID. just talking to a, one of my best friends in Colombia. He caught COVID. He recovered. But he he has now uh, smell uh, dyslexia mm. where he'll grab an orange and it'll smell like something else to him. Ah. And it's getting like worse. Like what? Uh, he was giving me an example. I forget what he said, but it was like an orange will smell like like an eraser or something. You know, it was oh. like totally different smells. And the doctor was telling him that he needs to work on retraining his brain. Is it? <laughs> it's horrible. It like destroyed nerves or something? I don't understand the mechanisms, but it has, for some people, it has long-term lasting effects. Right. All sorts. Right. Fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> lot, breathing problems. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. You know, the reason why I want to talk about this is because we watched a documentary on HBO called The Crime of the Century, which I highly recommend people watch, especially the first episode. Um, but let's get into it. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I grow organic poppy fields to see if I can put robots to sleep as well. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, so what is a... Opioid, Berto. Uh, an op- opioid um, is, as I understand it, a chemical compound derived from, um, I think it's from poppy seeds and maybe synthetic versions that uh, seems to go for specific receptors in in our brains, I guess pain areas and other things. And it's very powerful. It can be very addicting. That's about as much as I understand. Yeah, that's all true. Uh, opioids are the natural and synthetic, um, you know, compounds. Opiate is the natural compounds like heroin, morphine, codeine, this this kind of thing. So, if uh, the following medications you might be familiar with, so pe- everyone knows what morphine is, 
Um, oxycodone, this includes oxy, Oxycontin and Percocet. So whenever you hear Percocet or Oxy, um, that's what people are referring to. Hydrocodone, this is Vicodin. People have heard of that. Um, oxymorphone, Opana, uh, Fentanyl, you have heard, and Codeine. Yeah. Um, codeine is the only one that doesn't sound like the rest. You know, all the, all the <laughs> other ones have a lot of codones and yes. morph, morph, <laughs> but codeine sounds like caffeine. It yeah, sounds, caffeine. sounds like a nice thing. But, have me a little codeine. Yeah. So it is effective in treating acute pain, and it's been used for other things as well, but mainly for treating acute pain, meaning that, like, I remember I was, I don't know which one of these I was prescribed, but I had my wisdom teeth pulled. Mm-hmm. When I was 19 years old, and they just gave me a prescription for this. Right. And I uh, remember taking them and feeling very um, mellow. (laughs) I just remember thinking like, whoa. Right. I remember almost having like tunnel vision mellow, like really mellow. Weird. Like probably not good mellow. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever taken one of these before? Uh, so, okay. So for my operation that I had recently for my thyroidectomy. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know what they gave me while they were putting me under doing the operation. Maybe I was on, on an opiate. I don't know. But after the operation, they prescribed me oxycodone, oxycodone, whatever it's called, uh, and Tylenol. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, start... Start with the Tylenol, but you're probably going to want to take this one. You know, it's going to, pain's going to be really bad. Now, I hate taking things. I mean, I don't. I like, I like to not take things as much as I can. Even Tylenol, I just don't like taking it. And so I set myself to not take it if I could. Uh, and I didn't. And I, luckily, I was okay with the Tylenol. I was able to actually titrate down the. Why don't you want to take it? Um, I'm afraid, honestly. First of all, even Tylenol has side effects, you know, and uh, let alone these things i'm afraid to take something like that and then uh get addicted or or whatever i don't know it's you'd rather have the pain i'd rather have the pain Uh, now granted you know if pain was making my life my daily life impossible then that's you know and you end up having to make these very difficult decisions yeah yeah the documentary made an interesting point that americans we consider pain to be bad yeah something to be uh, rid of something to rid ourselves of like germs mm-hmm. similar to that that okay we have too many germs antibacterial everything and then now we have all these kids who are allergic right. to everything or wolves are bad kill them all and then right. y- the ecology falls apart and with pain uh, it's complicated now i want to say from the beginning that cr- pain is awful chronic pain is a billion times more awful oh absolutely look i i've had only glimpses into this uh, one time I pulled a neck muscle. Uh, this was two or three years ago or something like that. Maybe it was, I don't know. But at some point I pulled a neck muscle. And that doesn't sound so bad. No, no. This thing was so bad. My I had a constant headache. I couldn't focus on anything. Like it was just, and this only lasted like two or three days. Yeah. And for those two or three days, it was miserable. Yeah, you can't, so then, you can't sleep. No. So I was like, oh, oh my gosh, if someone is dealing with this. Yeah. On a constant basis? Right. Yeah. And the documentary goes, the main thesis of this documentary, Crime of the Century, is that uh, Big Pharma was marketing and also using illegal practices to push their, um, you know, medications, their pain meds, their opioids uh, to make billions upon billions of dollars and... 
it resulted in uh, them knowing that prescribers and patients were abusing the substances and but they didn't care because they were making all this money and the government was essentially complicit in this whole thing and people were dying and then once they couldn't get enough of the prescription drugs they went to heroin and then they would die from heroin and it's been going on for for 20 30 years yeah. and uh there's only been recent pushback kind of yeah. um and um so the the documentary was mainly anti big pharma and kind yeah. of anti oxycontin right anti percocet anti opioid but i will tell you that um the doctor that one that they kept interviewing uh, uh lynn webster i think his name was or something webster in the first documentary in the yeah, first half first yeah yeah i know who you're talking about then yeah he he had that clinic yes the live life route or something yes yes yeah, yeah right life life route. tree life, life tree, tree yeah and he uh was uh he owned this clinic and was making a lot of money from yeah. various different pain treatments mainly in involving lots of meds which was scandalized by this uh, documentary but he made it actually a good point he said that and I'm glad they left it in. He said, "Look, when someone comes to you and they're suffering from chronic pain mm -hmm. and they don't want to live anymore, their life is completely over essentially. And we have the ability to possibly take away that pain with with medication, then we have to he, this isn't his exact words, but No, but it's we, it's we have to sentiment. we have to weigh the pros yeah. and the cons. We understand that these medications can become addictive. We understand that these medications can cause someone to die. Yep. That happens sometimes. But suicide or complete, uh, uh, you know, on a scale from zero to ten, uh, a zero well-being for the rest of their life, uh, what's the alternative? It's sort of like when someone has a terminal illness and, and they're like, well, let's do this experimental drug that might cause your fingers to fall off. Some right. people are just like, fine, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. I, I don't want my fingers to fall off, but I, I, you know, if this has a chance of, of helping me. Or if there's a vaccine with some side effects, but that can stop, I don't know, 4 million people dead around the world. And yeah, you know, right. And you have, you might, you have a one it. in 200 million <laughs> chance of actually yeah. having a serious side effect. Then, you know, it's, it's a, a, the the dice are definitely worth rolling. I mean, you literally have to dice. You'd really have to roll like five thousand dice and get all sixes, essentially. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's not true, but something along those lines. Um, so he made that point, and and it's true. Uh, and that's another point of this documentary that I, I wish they emphasized a little bit more, which is that when they should have talked to someone that actually wanted. The, yeah. the meds because the, because there wasn't any talk of like is anyone benefiting from this protocol because right. some some do right. some benefit from that protocol i so i actually I, I like the first half of the documentary a little better partially because the narrative um now look i don't need it to be balanced like clearly there's some really bad players in this story it's just there there is that aspect uh, and i th i felt the doctor that doctor and maybe he's a really good actor but he some seemed a lot less cynical about all of this than some of the other players. Yeah. Because he was like, hey, look, this is this is my vision. I, I really do believe this. Right. Now, maybe he's lying to himself. I don't know. It's true that once you get mo money rolling in, you can tell yourself a lot of things. Right. At the same time, 
look, I've been on, on a learning curve for the last year and a half or so that I hadn't had before in my life about how complicated medicine can get for when you're sick and how many, how few answers sometimes there are and, and how blurry lines are. And sometimes there's, there's no clear answers. Like, should I, you know, when I was trying to decide whether I should get my thyroid removed, it was a really hard decision and there wasn't a clear, obvious answer. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you read online of pros, cons. Oh, I had a horrible, I, I had a good experience. So then you get to these pain things. And like we were just saying, sometimes when we think of pain, normally we're thinking about like, yeah, well, I've stubbed my toe. Oh my God. No, no, no. You actually can't, if you haven't had it, and I haven't had it to the level that some people have it, if you haven't had it, you actually don't know. Right. And so when you do have those situations, uh, it's m- modern medicine and science that has delivered some things that can help. Yeah. So there is a flip side. And then there's the abuse and there's the abusive practices and there's the greed and there's the and then there were some people that they've highlighted in in both the first and the second half that i do think they're they're truly i don't know kind of in the loose term of it psychopathic about it you know they just care about the money they have no empathy for anyone yeah psychopathic behavior the uh the 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 documentary is interesting because it it lays out a lot of the corruption and the greed and the criminality and the very little accountability that <laughs> has been, um, you know, yeah. enforced and how we're still in it, essentially. Well, like when they were saying, you know, I think the Purdue was ordered to pay $8 billion or whatever, right. but they were in bankruptcy. Right. But the fa- they went through what the family owns and it was like, wait, they own a portfolio of golf courses or right. whatever it was, you know, like a portfolio of of islands or you know it's like these crazy things yeah and it the documentary lays it out really well in that all those people all, all their wealth is siphoned off from millions of right. low to middle income individuals who were uh in a rash manner prescribed medications because their insurance company wouldn't pay for more involved mm-hmm. treatments you know like when you when you have pain so i will say that i have had brief moments of ongoing pain i, I had lower back pain for a number of years um that's just mere just left miraculously mm-hmm. like a few years ago um and uh, i it it was it was minor though and it was demoralizing the everything is negative when that's around like you go to dinner with your friends it's supposed to be a fun time you know you have a couple of drinks and you have a nice meal and you have good conversations and you have a good you have a few laughs but the entire time my lower back would be jabbing like a like a uh, knife uh, would yeah. just every once in a while just go yeah. and every time it happened i it would just I don't know why it does this, but it just completely ruins everything. I'm, of course. And then I'm just, I just, you don't want to do anything. So yeah. imagine if you're a five and, and a, I was like more like a, you know, a one to three range. It's just, it was recurring and you didn't know why and it wasn't going away. <sighs> well, I knew why. I have an old football injury in my back. Uh, I have a broken bone. Uh, I don't know you telling me that. Yeah, yeah. I, have a, I have a. And plus per- you used to sleep on that bed of nails, which maybe it didn't help. Yeah. Yeah, well, debates. Acupuncture, though. They're still debating, yeah. <laughs> um, so the um, uh, it's demoralizing, and so when you can have some treatment, then you're going to want it. Now, I will say that the 
uh, regimen that was disclosed with that woman who died mm-hmm. was was criminal. Well, the the list, I don't know if this was the real list, but the list they listed seemed unbelievable. Like, yeah. And I, you know, yeah, she was prescribed <laughs> multiple opioids plus uh several several sedatives, you know, including benzodiazepine stuff and you put all that together. So so why Berto do opioids kill people? Um why do opioids How kill do people? they kill people? Well, again, I have a limited understanding. What I understand when someone is very addicted to, say, heroin, um, is eventually they they have problems with their organs, like their heart can fail, they can have liver problems, they can um, uh, have pulmonary problems. That that's my understanding. And then not not to mention they can do something dramatic and harm themselves or others. And uh, the last one is highly debatable because, so let me tell you, so I didn't know when, when I was growing up, heroin and cocaine, they all kind of felt like they were in the same category, right? Heroin makes you extremely tired and mellow. It, it right. makes you very chill and, it, and relaxed. It's just, I, the, the picture I have in my head is that video footage of the two parents in the car passed out with the little baby in the back. Right. That doesn't seem safe to me. <laughs> right. Uh, but they, but uh, in all fairness, they probably just pulled over and passed out. You know what I mean? And But the reason why I refute the kind of general statement of like you do bad things is like there's this association with, because of all the say no to drugs in the 80s, to me, anyway, I just associated any hard drug with basically becoming psychotic, which well, which is right. more associated with like uh, extreme reactions to like psychedelics or something. Fair enough. I'm thinking. So I saw a fentanyl documentary a bit ago, not related to this one, um, and I guess I'm thinking about more the fact that cops are always responding to incidents related to these uh, to these um, abuses and. To what? Of, to fentanyl abuses? Fentanyl, uh, oxycodone, all these things, right? And and it's either what kind of what kind of crimes though? It, at least in the documentary, there it's all sorts of stuff. People were sometimes uh, uh, there was crimes being committed as a result of their addiction. Sometimes it but was, not you, not because. But the point that I'm making, I'm is not that, saying they're psychotic. I'm just saying that. But even it leads when you them to harm themselves or others as a result of their addiction. No, that's actually, I mean, unless you can give me a specific incident. When, now, when you're desperate for money for the substance, then you will commit criminal acts. That's, that's part of the equation. But that's not the intoxication. I'm talking about the intoxication. Okay, but you asked how they die. And I said, you know, they can die because they're addicted to the thing and they have to get the money and they commit crimes. Okay, right? all right. Well, yeah. so people die because of respiration depression. So it slows your breathing down mm-hmm. to the point where you just stop breathing or you're not breathing enough and then you die. That's the main way people die from okay. opioids. Pain meds um, like this uh, in the opioid class have uh, the general effect it has on the brain suppresses a lot of brain act, nerve, nervous, nervous system activity, which reduces pain receptor or pain processes to pain signals, but it reduces all signals. So you become really mellow and it suppresses the signaling to the heart to 
uh, pump, it's, it suppresses the signaling to the um, lungs to and diaphragm to keep you breathing. And so people will pass out mm-hmm. and they'll stop breathing. There's also, you can die from low b- blood pressure as well. There are other ways you could die from it, but that's mainly the way that you die. And I think that's important to uh, to know for people because it can, you know, I think heroin and oxy, it, it can be talked about in a certain way in pop culture that makes it seem like it's super fun or something like it's like it's a party drug. It, it's it's not a very good party drug. <laughs> it's so, a drug that, that like, yeah. it just it numbs you out. And then if you take too much, which is usually what people are trying to avoid, you're not trying to pass out, but people will take too much. Yeah. And then that's when they die. So the documentary I saw definitely did not make it seem like a party. It was every response that because they were showing the cops going on all these things. It was a horror scene like out of the movie Seven every time. You know, it was basically, like you're saying, sometimes it was just people completely unresponsive, but a lot of times it was these very chaotic situations because how desperate they are for, you know, trying yeah. to get the drug and all these things. And uh, tons of neglect cases, tons, like just kids being neglected because, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, but I also want to dispel a little bit of that association uh, by telling you a few more stories. Certainly that happens. Yeah. I mean, and I would treat a lot of children, you know, in families like that or adults who were children in situations like that for sure. But the vast majority of cases that I treated with opioid problems and heroin problems, it, they would be your friend. You wouldn't know anything different about them. So so let me tell you some some other stories. So there's this other client I had. And I, whenever I talk about clients, I always... Uh, change things about them to sure. obscure their identity. But this guy, young guy in his 20s, uh, worked for a tech business in Seattle. Uh, not one of the big ones, but one of the ancillary tech businesses. And nice young guy, you know, real clean cut, real preppy, white kid, um, upper middle class, uh, family, parents still together, mm-hmm. siblings love him, has a has a um, a girlfriend or fiance that a lovely person, and I met all of them because I would bring them in to, mm-hmm. to family therapy to support his uh, efforts to try to remain sober. And you know, I'll spare you all the details of his ups and downs, but he uh, struggled greatly with sobriety. It was extremely difficult for him mm. because it's it, it's the 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 pull to use once you become, once yeah. it gets its hooks into you, is so strong. You know, he'd he'd come home from work after being sober for like six months, and it would just kind of pop in his head, and then he'd be, you know, texting his guy, and then boom, he's got yeah. it, and boom, he's high, and and then he'd go on a bender for a couple of weeks or maybe longer, and it it was extremely difficult for him to quit, and his life was. And I could, with him, like with the other guy I told you about, you know, he traumatized, goes to procedure, gets the med. This guy, I, we had investigated it, you know, a lot to try to get at the root, so to speak, of his addiction. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't really anything there. I mean, there were some minor family issues that everyone kind of goes through, but he just, uh, you know, was exposed to it, essentially, partying or a friend had it or something. He started experimenting. And he, 
just loved it because it, it 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 feels like what people describe it is like a warm blanket yeah. of love. It can it can literally make you feel like you did when you were two years old being held right. by your by your mom. Yeah, yeah. Being yeah, if sick. it didn't feel good, it'd be hard to understand why people would start it. <laughs> right, and I think that's the key to understand. It's it's, it's not like. It's not like cigarettes, which I've never understood how people start. Yeah. Or it's not like bath salts, you know, where you're eating someone's face off. You know, it's... But it doesn't start that way. <laughs> it's it's a feeling of, of warmth. It's a feeling of relaxation. It's a feeling of no pain psychologically or physically. It's a feeling of just, you know, all the stresses just wash away. It's a very seductive drug and that's why it's been present you know in the form of opium going back you know a couple hundred years or something i think i think one of the issues with with fentanyl is because i even if i understand correctly if i remember from that documentary they even briefly showed it that first responders or cops or whatever like they have to wear respirators in many cases because i I don't remember the details but there's something like they're they're susceptible to getting uh fentanyl in their system when they're responding Right, so fentanyl is extremely potent per yeah. per you know milligram. It's a whole new thing, and the issue is that uh, when you go into a place that's manufacturing it, obviously you need mm-hmm. to have all the hazmat suits. But for people, and this is why people end up dying, is that the uh, dose that you need increases dramatically over time. Yeah, so you could be a year into your addiction and the dose that you need would have killed you six months earlier. And what'll happen is there's just so much of the substance around. If you get raided, it's, there's just a lot. The other thing that happens is that people will struggle with sobriety because hardly anyone wants to be addicted. You know, no one wants to be addicted, but hardly anyone wants to use it in the way that people are using it just chronically like this. It's very debilitating. It's sort of like with cigarettes past a certain period of time. No one's like a, a hundred percent happy smoker, you know what I mean? It, it's an addiction and people will quit. And yeah. what'll happen is when they, when they relapse, they will go back to a similar dosage in the past, Jeez. but there would, but their tolerance is so much lower that they'll kill themselves. A lot of people will die upon relapsing. Oof. Um, so, uh, all right, well, let's take a break, Berto. When we get back, let's do a little bit of facts about this and also celebrities who have died from this. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you all know, I am constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. Well, one of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp. If you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the promo code Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it really helps us out. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, which is great because you deserve it. And I know also that it can be hard to find a good fit, find the right one for you. Well, one of the options available in terms of your shopping is to go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. I've been told you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message your counselor at any time. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. I've also been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy, and you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month today. All right, we're back from the break. Just one little point of business. If you are not a annual patron 
uh, please do so now. Even if you're a, a patron, uh, you can switch over to annual. We're trying to get everyone to do that because it, it's a, a discount to you on Patreon, and it also helps us with our planning of the future. All right. Since 2000, so the past 20 years, how many have died from heroin in the United States? In the last 20 years, how many people have died from heroin? Uh, I'm going to go with 20,000. Uh, 500,000. Oh, my God. Half a million people, yeah. That's that's uh, COVID numbers right there. What percentage uh, abuse uh, opioids after being prescribed from an injury or surgery? What percentage? Okay. So, uh, you know, of everyone who gets prescribed, right, right, right. what percentage end up abusing? Uh, specifically for opioids. Uh, I'm going to say 20%. 4%. Oh, good. But still. Still, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's one in 25. I was afraid you were going to, you know. But do you know how many people, especially in the last 30 years after an injury or surgery were prescribed? I mean, this is a lot of people. Yeah. In 2016, how many prescriptions for opioid drugs were written by prescribers? In which year? 2016. How many prescriptions? So it's similar to today. Yeah, similar to today, yeah. Okay, I'm going to go with... Um, you, you have like almost 400 million people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with uh, 10 million. 289 million. Come on. Stop it. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, so some people have multiple prescriptions, right? But still. Uh, I know, but come on. But so even if everyone had five prescriptions, which would be really weird. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, some of them are like for you and me, post-surgery, you're given a prescription with three pills in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of people, it's not the case. It, it it's There's a particular problem in the U.S. because of the way our system works and how wealthy we are, I suppose. I will say that over-prescription is crazy. Like even with stuff that's not opi- opioids. Uh, for example, again, as a result of my recent health problems, at one point, Someone prescribed me like potassium citrate tablets. Okay. I never ended up using the one box because it ended up not being necessary. But they kept refilling the prescription at Walgreens and I would keep getting all these calls. I ended up with like 10 of these boxes at home. Never used or needed one. Because like they don't, the left hand doesn't sometimes talk to the right hand and they don't stop the prescription. Yeah. It's crazy. And so I can imagine with, with this stuff too, you know, like all it would have taken for me to get a whole bunch of that oxycodone is for me to just say that I was still in pain. Right. And I would have like, I would probably still be getting those prescriptions. Yeah. No. So what I will say is that prescribers are getting a little bit better than they were uh, five, 10 years ago regarding what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now. They'll, uh, they're, but it's only some prescribers. It's not all where they will say, Look, try Tylenol. If that doesn't work, let me know, and we can maybe try something else. And then if they try something else, they're like, look, I'm going to give you three of these pills, but that's it. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to have to think about some ongoing pain treatments like physical therapy or mindfulness and this kind of thing. All right, so we had to take a little break because, uh, well, tell us, Berto. Yeah, so actually I was getting a call from my dad. Um, my dad was operated today for his right eye. Uh, he, they're also going to operate his left eye, but they have to do one at a time. I think it's for cataracts. Um, and uh, he was telling me how much pain he's in, actually, which is very apropos. 
Um, and he was telling me that he had already taken the prescribed uh, Tylenols or whatever, but that he was still in pain. So he called the doctor and the doctor said, well, maybe switch it up. Take uh, ibuprofen in, uh, next. Uh, take this one that's a little more powerful. But he's a little worried. He's like, ah, the pain has been like shooting pains from the eye and it hurts his head and shoots down. So, and this is just a small example. He just had that operation. It's a fairly, you know, as operations go, it, I mean, it is the eye, but you know, and, and he, here he is with pain management issues. And, um, it's, I can see the, from the patient's perspective, it's like, what do I do? This pain is nearly unbearable. I already took the pills they gave me. What do I do? And these aren't even opioids, you know? Right. Didn't Chris on Sopranos get addicted because of his... Yes, he he had... That's right. That's right. He got addicted because of pain meds. He got shot. Yeah. And he was in pain. That was right. And And of course, he already had the psychology to go with it. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So, tougher bluff, Berto. Painkillers kill more people than heroin and cocaine combined. So, you know, prescription mm, pills. Uh, more than heroin and cocaine combined. Wow. I mean, I'm going to go bluff, hopefully. It's tough. It's tough? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm surprised, too. I would have thought for sure oh that heroin killed more. Not because painkillers are good, I but because... I should have known, though. But that I, thought, I thought more people transition from painkillers right, to heroin. right. But yeah. I think a lot of people stay yeah. in the painkiller realm and die from overdoses there. Uh, yeah. That's so incredible. Let me give you another uh, story of another client. So this is a, a teenager girl who had drug-addicted parents and went into the foster care sim- system. And by the time I met her, she was a teenager and was in a lot of conflict with her foster parents. And this is back when I was doing in-home therapy for families, and I would go into the home, and I would talk with her uh, every week. And she was an interesting client, very resistant to me. (laughs) Mm, Interesting. But as a lot of teenagers were, but would play along uh, for the most part, but it was a struggle. And... The foster mom would give me updates when I'd came in the, come in the house. She'd go, oh, she's doing this. She's now, she's now she's with this older guy, and he's a heroin addict. And oh, I don't, oh I, no. I don't like her being with him. And and for her, she had massive attachment injuries. Obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of um, anger, a lot of disillusionment with society and the system, right. and her uh, foster parents and her peers. And found this guy that was um, someone that she could fall in love with, someone right. that she felt safe with. And I uh, treated her for a while, and she was very, very set on moving out as soon as she could. Mm. She hated authority. She didn't want to go to school. She didn't want to do anything. She just thought, I just want to live with my boyfriend and everything will be fine. And I didn't hear, and at some point we terminated. I'm not exactly sure why. It was a long time ago. And then we got a call from the foster mom years later. And she's like, do you remember so-and-so? And And I actually didn't because I'm not really good with names. I'm like, I'm really good with faces. I'll see someone 
across at a <laughs> in a mall and i'll be like i went to i was in second grade with that kid, oh wow with that guy. you know like yeah, i'm yeah. really good at recognizing faces but names i'm just awful at but anyway and she's like well anyway she died from heroin overdose uh and i was like oh my god i'm so sorry and then i i hung up the phone and then i looked up on her records and instantly re- remembered i was like because in my head i'm like was this a client that i barely saw and i was like no no i worked with this client for months is this is a foster family Pardon the ignorance. Like, do they have multiple kids? Or yeah. Is the, well, okay. every foster parent is different, is different okay. but this was one that would have kind of a revolving. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they had a revolving door of kids, but they also had yeah. some that stayed there indefinitely. But I called her back and said, of course, I remember. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm terrible with names. And it was. I don't know the circumstances, but I can imagine the circumstances that she had a lot mm. of relational PTSD and when she was introduced to heroin or or painkillers from her boyfriend it made her feel okay and she probably struggled with addiction and then used too much one time on accident and died actually there's another story that i can actually say the name because i well i won't say the name because i'm but i'm pretty sure we've said his name anyway there was a an early fan of this podcast mm-hmm. who in, in the UK who Interesting. Uh, was, he was like one of the first super fans, okay. one of the first before patrons, before mm-hmm. famous patron Lyndon. Sure, sure. There was this guy and he even, he had his own radio show oh, and, wow. and interviewed me on his radio show in, in the UK. And anyway, I mean, I think it was like a web-based radio show, but anyway, sure. Good guy, great guy, fun guy, and his friend or partner, associate, someone reached out to me years ago and said that he had overdosed on <gasps> on heroin. No. Yeah. Overdosed and... And died. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow. On accident, you know? Yeah. So what famous people have overdosed on opioids? And this is one of the... You know, famous people are famous, but it, it, I, when a lot of famous people die or have something, then it's kind of an indication of we have a problem, right? Like, for example, so. for example, Bert, yeah. let's just compare it to the COVID thing. What famous people have died from COVID that you know of? Um, I don't remember. I know that there were a couple names of older Yeah, I, I, I could look it up. I actually have a list, but um, what's-his-face that ran for president? But the fact that there were people that were famous that are, have a lot of money usually... And that died from COVID because I actually would say that that that's even more telling because that sample size is pretty representative with the with the drugs. I don't know how much it is or isn't because you would also think that celebrities are more exposed to parties and extremes and money for drugs and things. Well, I think, yeah, (laughs) that 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 and I think that the pressures of being in the limelight cause people to need to do things, you know, like. Uh, for you and me, Berta, we have a you know point zero zero one percent of a exposure to that sort of fame right. content. You know, you think like someone like Prince who died yeah, from yeah. it. Uh, you're, you're a content provider in a sense. You, yeah. You've got to you have to put out outcome, output. You know, you've got to put stuff out there. You got to perform. You got to record. You got to do press junkets and. And you got to be on, and you have to you have to have energy. You have to have yep. good sleep. You have to be able to bring the magic every yep. single time. And if you've been doing it since you were a kid, 
Yeah. yeah. And if you have a very energetic dance routine on stage where you're uh, oh, yeah. jumping up and down in high heel shoes and, you and you're, you're probably going to have some back pain or some leg pain mm-hmm. or something. And, or, oh, yeah. Didn't Michael Jackson get addicted to something after his hair incident? Right. So, yeah. um, or uh, Elvis Presley, who needed to uh, sleep at night, but also needed to perform during the yeah. day. And, and back then, they were just handing these things out like, oh, like candy. Man. But anyway, so famous people, I mentioned Prince, he died of a fentanyl overdose when he was 57. Fentanyl, huh? Yeah. Wow. And didn't um, that actress, uh, she was in a movie with Ashton Kutcher. Um, oh, what's her face? Yeah, what was her name? Um, uh, she was I, in. I liked she, her. Was, she, she was, was in. Uh, she was in eight, eight Mile, right? Yeah, she was the love interest in Eight Mile, right? Um, Brittany Murphy. Brittany Murphy. Didn't she die from drugs? Uh, or l- let me look it up. Brittany Murphy death. Let's see. Firefighters rescue. She dead. Cardiac arrest. So appears to be natural. It's a natural. <laughs> her death certificate cause of death okay. deferred. Primary was pneumonia, okay. anemia, okay. and multiple drug intoxication. Ah, okay. <laughs> Hydrocodone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, what I thought. That's yeah. Okay. Uh, who else? Let's see. Uh, famous drugs. Didn't David Carradine die? I don't uh, know. In a very awkward. No, I think he died from asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. But yeah, I, don't, but I, I don't, thought don't he was also Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Well, once I name these names, you're going to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. So we got Heath Ledger. That was drugs? Yeah. For some reason, I had in my mind that it was a suicide. No, it was accidental. Well, I think it was debated, okay. but I think it, okay. it was, most people are saying it was accidental. It was oxycodone, hydrocodone, this is oxycodone. Oh, jeez. And diazepam, which is a which is a benzodiazepine, which is another thing that can actually cause right. alcohol, benzodiazepines, and opioids can slow your breathing, mm. especially when you use them together, Oof. and you can die. So be very careful. Yeah. When you're drinking alcohol and taking a benzo. I had another client that died just while we're on the alcohol thing, because alcohol kills a lot of people too. Yeah. She was in college and didn't drink that much, and she was with her friends. She goes to bed in the other room, and everyone's still kind of in the living room. And when they you know, went to wake her up in the morning, she just died. And she, she didn't even drink that much. And she wasn't like a partier, you know? She just, but it just stopped her breathing. Yeah, alcohol can do that. Oh. Tom Petty. Tom Petty? Yeah. I knew he died. I just... Wow. Yeah. Accidental overdose on fentanyl and oxycodone. What? He was treating pain from a fractured hip. Oh, my gosh. Uh, now, Kurt Cobain, is, he didn't die from heroin. He died from suicide or from murder, depending on what you believe. Yeah. But he definitely... He was addicted was, to opioids. He was definitely suffering from heroin addiction. River Phoenix? What? Yeah. Yeah, I, d- I guess I just blocked all these out of my yeah memory. Overdose, but why would they die? Overdose I mean, of uh, heroin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Morrison. Yeah, I knew that one. That's true. Philip Seymour Hoffman. <gasps> Another one that I thought was suicide. No, uh, I mean, in all uh, yeah, likelihood, not. Yeah. He he had one of those classic situations where he. I, if I remember right, used after a stretch of sobriety. I see. And went on a bender and oh, man. took what he would have taken earlier and it killed him. Don't say Robin Williams. No. No, he was suicide, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, John John Belushi. 
Okay, I knew that. Uh, and and a number of others. But, you yeah. know, these are eight of the most famous yeah. people in our society. Yeah. All died from opioids. Yeah. And that's just... And a lot of familiar names in those lists. That's just the of, famous of people. opioids. We have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> we have a problem. And there's all these songs, rap songs that, uh, you know, venerate. There's a song by Future called Oxy. If you've ever heard it, it really? is. Yeah. I mean, from the lyrics, I can't tell if he is making fun or he's aware of the problems because at some one point he says comatose, you know? Well, there is a song. Um, oh, and I forgot the name of the dude, but there is a song about uh, other kinds of pills Man, this story is going nowhere fast. But <laughs> I have heard mumble rap songs that are very in the middle where you listen to the lyrics and yeah. you're like, wait, it sounds like they don't like it. Yeah. But they're also kind of glamorizing it. Right. Yeah, Purple Drank, that kind of thing. Yeah. Eminem talked about Oxy a lot, I seem to remember. So uh, now why? Well, because a lot of these fellas and yeah. artists suffered from a lot of trauma growing up and neglect and uh, use these substances as a way to numb that pain. Yeah. It, and, and that's the point I really want to get across to people is that opioids, it's not glamorous. And Berto, you know, painted a, a good picture. But even if we don't go into the kind of horror crack houses in which some of these people die, the, the clients that I worked with, let me tell you about yeah. another, another client. She was from a family uh, and she was in her 20s and she was struggling with getting her life off the ground and her sisters were doing really well her brothers were doing really well big family and she felt really bad about herself and she was the i think maybe the last sibling to live at home and she you know mid late 20s and she didn't have many friends she's really shy and someone comes along and gives her a Percocet, mm. or somehow she got Percocets. And again, for the first time in her life, she can socialize. Oh, wow. She can she can even just hang out with her parents Jeez. and feel normal. Oh, how addicting would that be instantly? Yeah, just like, a, like for her, taking the pill made it so that she could have fun. Uh, so, you know, she didn't want to uh, take, she didn't want to be, in, she didn't want to be intoxicated. Yeah. She just wanted to be like mellow. You know how some people will use alcohol as yeah. like a, a social lubricant. You know she would use it, and so she she was able to, uh, according to her, live a happier life. Maybe even get a job. It was like her gateway into functionality. But uh, sorry, in a very small, teeny way, we can, a lot of us can relate to that. Like you're saying with alcohol, I remember, you know, when I used to go out in clubs and things, um, that difference in how I would feel, how powerful I would feel socially when I'd had a couple drinks in me. And it took me many years to learn how to sort of evoke that from myself without having to have alcohol. Right. It's hard. Yeah. And so, and that's nothing compared to the feelings these people get, you know, but it's it's real. It's like you're at the party or at the club and you're like, oh, ho-hum, I'm, I, can't, I don't really want to talk to anyone. Oh, I should go talk to them. No, I can't. Then you have two drinks. You're like, whoa, I'm social. I can talk. Right. And then you have success with talking. Right. And it's like, wow, I yeah, should do that more often. There's two things I'll say. One is is that both alcohol and heroin will reduce certain 
likelihoods of, and I'm not a brain scientist, so this is going to sound all non-jargony, but brain processes that are related to fear. Mm. And when you don't feel the fear, then you're more, you're less inhibited. The other thing I'll say is that we have a lot of associations with alcohol. So there's a chance that if you went to a club and mm-hmm. someone gave you non-alcoholic drink drink that s- tasted like drinking, <laughs> after two so-called drinks... I might still feel that. <laughs> right. Because the other effect that happens is whenever you go to a party at the beginning, even if everyone's hammered, every, you know, everyone's shot <laughs> yeah. because you're trying to feel out the situation. Yep. And over time, you start to you know, be able to feel comfortable and, and they've done, you know, studies on that. They'll give people what they'll say, this is alcohol. And then they'll be, they'll act all uninhibited (laughs) when there's no alcohol in it. Um, Not to say that alcohol also doesn't help, but anyway, so she took the Percocet. Percocet was her thing. Uh, She really, is that also an opioid or is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, is it, it's uh, oxycodone. Oh, it's the same as it's the, Percocet and Oxycontin. It's just uh, another brand. Brand names of nice. Oxycodone, yeah. And uh, she was found out somehow, I think by her family or something, like they discovered the pills and they forced her into treatment. And they all came in. The whole family came into mm. my office. And I discovered that she felt extremely insecure for lack of a better term and had some personality problems because of that due to her family. And so I treated both, I treated her family and her individual uh, psychology. And then she was also in a, this is when I worked actually at a drug treatment center. Mm -hmm. And so I was the therapist on staff and then there were all these, you know, chemical dependency people. Mm. So she went to group and anyway, so she was doing the whole thing and uh, she was a great client, and we had a, a lot of great conversations, and I was really trying to help her to understand that the way she's being treated in her life and the way she sees herself is unfair, and trying to you know help her to see the goodness in her and have the strength to draw boundaries with her parents and, and this sort of thing. And she uh, achieved sobriety, and for months I was treating her and every time I'd ask her, you know, how you doing with your surprise? She's I'm doing good. And the chemical dependency people would say, yeah, she's doing good. And then one day the chemical dependency people came to me and she's like, so she had a dirty urinalysis, you know, a, a oh, dr- yeah. drug test for opioids. And, but it was pretty low. It was a pretty low number. So it could have mm. been a false positive. And I was like, I'm sure that's a false positive. There's no way because yeah, she, her and I have a great relationship. And she would tell me because, right. you know, we're uh, – and she knows that she can tell me and I wouldn't even tell you. Like that was part of my role was like you can tell me. I won't even tell the other staff members here yeah. if, if you're using because I want you to be able to tell me. And I met with her and I said, you know, you got this positive thing. She said, oh, no, I, I, I promise you up and down. And I believed her. I was like – and I go to chemical dependency people. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty sure this is a, a false positive and – they were convinced, no, she's using. Mm. And I'm like, and they had done this a lot. And so I was getting annoyed with them anyway, pre- yeah. prior to this of how harsh they talked about their clients, about my clients. And so I got defensive and, and I was like, I don't know. I think you guys are jumping the gun here. I, I you know, those tests can produce false positives sometimes, you know, if you have a bagel with, yeah. with poppy, poppy seeds. seeds on or yeah. something. 
And this goes on for a while. I think she has another dirty UA and they're like, yep, she's using. And the problem was, is that if she's using it, they're going to kick her out of the whole right. clinic. Uh, Cause often that's how these, you know, chemical, de- the, the wisdom of these chemical dependency systems work. And there's some wisdom to it, but it can be a little dr- draconian, but, and I'm still like, I just can't see it. Cause I can't see her lying to me yeah. so much. Well, then her parents or someone finds on her phone this whole string of texts between her and her drug dealer. Oh, Not only no. was she getting, you know, Percocets from him, but she was also, uh, ber- like, um, how do I say it? She was uh, uh, threatening him in certain ways. Okay. And they were kind of going back and forth, and the language she was using was shocking to me. It was this whole other person. Yeah. You know? And that's the thing. Wow. Be- because of the shame, you compartmentalize. Yeah. And you don't want to admit it to anyone, even to the self, that you're doing this. You yeah. say, well, look, I'm just taking just taking one pill a day or I'm just taking five yeah, yeah. pills a day. It's okay. Everything's fine. Every, you know, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I don't want anyone to be disappointed in me and I don't want to be kicked out of the program. I like talking to Kirk. I don't want to be, you know, and it was hmm. one of those moments where I realized that uh, drug addiction, particularly, you know, Percocet addiction can be so powerful yeah. that it will envelop your personality Mm. Such that a seasoned therapist like me, who is very skeptical of people lying to me, especially in situations like that, was completely naive to the fact that she might be lying to me. You know, like I'm pretty good at detecting when people are lying to me. And uh, I mean, I'm detecting by falling for the Prince of uh, Sahara several times. But after that, you learned talking about Loki (laughs) or someone. The, oh, the little chain letters for oh. sending money to uh, Nigeria I mean, or something. I, I, I want to retract what I said. I'm not good at detecting lying. I'm I, I'm good at being skeptical of yeah people saying things to me when there's a possibility of lying. And and anyway, and yet this was so extreme in the personality change that yeah. And it wow. was and it was you know <laughs> really was hard on her, and she was so deeply 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 ashamed. Yeah, and. Again, her life is fine. She's living with her family. You know, she's in her 20s. She's single. Mm-hmm. Not a big deal. Um, but another little asterisk on the story was during our treatment, when she was sober, presumably, she fell and had an injury and went to the hospital, ER. And they treated her because it was kind of a nasty injury. And as she was leaving, they, the doctor said, Here, here's a prescription for Percocets. Mm. And she's trying to be sober. Oh, right. From Percocets. Jeez. Or whatever, some Yeah, some equivalent. Drug. And the doctor is, and she's so shy that she, and she's so ashamed that she says, oh, no, thank you. But she doesn't say, I'm an addict. Right. Don't do that. <laughs> right. But she says, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'll be okay. And he's like, no, no, no. Take like, it. Take You'll it. need it. You'll need it. You'll just, want this. Just in case. And she's like, um... And right now, she has the devil and the angel on her shoulder. Yeah. One is saying, take it. Take the other it. is saying, do not take it's it. It's like, look, this doctor is telling you. Right. You should listen to the doctor. Right. And you don't have to take it. Just, yeah. just take it. Yeah. You just take Just fill it. You don't have to take it. Oh, man. And the doctor kept pushing and kept pushing. And I can't remember oh. the outcome, but I can't remember if she took it and then didn't fill it or 
finally said no. But situations like that. And let me do another I asterisk. Wish, on I wish she could have said, listen, yeah. sometimes your patients are addicted to these things. Yeah. And I am that. Yeah. Because like that doctor doesn't even consider that that might be a problem. Right. Ugh. Right. Uh, so another asterisk to this is early in my career, you know, as a psychotherapist, I have taken classes and been supervised by people that understand medications. And so I, I, I don't prescribe obviously, but I do know enough under some circumstances with some medications, how to speak directly with patients about their medications. Mm -hmm. uh, benzodiazepines I know a lot about, and there was a time when I thought I knew a lot about pain meds. This is early in my career. And one of my family members was having some pain and she was prescribed. She was having tremendous pain from shingles. Ooh. Be very. By the way, everyone out there, get your shingles vaccine. Ooh. I'm getting mine next week. Is that a refresher thing you have to do? No, it's something you get when you're 50. Oh, okay. Because that's when your likelihood of having... Jeez. Have you had um, chicken pox? I did. Yeah. So yeah. shingles is like a recurring Adult version of it. Well, it's it, it's the virus because you know you never get rid of the mm. of the virus. You still you and I, I still have chicken box. We still have that virus okay. from what I understand. And shingles is like an outbreak. Yeepers. Essentially, um, and it can be really bad, right? It can, yeah, it can be completely debilitating, as it was for my Which, family. By the way, can we next time? I, just saying, as we have committees to name diseases. Can we give a scary, damaging disease a better name than shingles? Yeah. Because when you hear shingles, that just doesn't sound bad. Yeah. It sounds like, oh, I've got the shingles, you know? <laughs> like it's a little, like a well, funny what would little you, thing. What would you th think it should be like, called? I don't know, death plasma. I've got the death plasma. <laughs> or, or, you know, or bone extrusions. I've got bone extrusions. What does it do? It's got nothing to do with bones or extrusions, but it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got I got Darth Vader disease. Yeah. Um, so the I, face melt. I've got the face melt. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a patty melt. Then I'm like young <laughs> face melt. Um, or a guitar riff. <laughs> by the way, uh, I was I texted you the other day because I rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark and was loving it. And then when the face melt scene happened, yeah, I, I was. It's been a while since I've seen that scene in the context of the movie. <laughs> It is a cheesy ass scene. Well, yes, but at the time, yeah. Oh, it was mind blowing and scary and traumatizing. Yeah, but I mean, I was younger than you when I saw it, so yeah. Uh, but th that movie is, you Oof, know, yeah. it's a classic. But so good. But that, but those, because one of the heads explodes. I mean, yeah, the, the scene is like a scene from a B movie in the eighties. Yeah, the wax melting from the face. Yeah. The... True. True. Like, like anyway. So, but, but but the nice thing about that movie is that as far as special effects go, most of the rest of it was very practical stuff. You know, like it's a car chase. It's a, it's a, you know, the, yeah. a room full of snakes. It's oh yeah, you know, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I was telling my family member because she was telling me she's on a pain, and I'm like, well, they're giving you pain meds, and she's like, well, I don't want to take them. I'm like, why do you want to take them? She's like, well, I'm afraid of becoming addicted. <laughs> I'm afraid of right. becoming addicted. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. Just take the meds. You're okay. What could go wrong? And, and she's like, and, and, and then I talked to her another time. I'm like, are you taking the meds? She's like, no. I'm like worried about addiction. I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. And she's like, well, you know, are they addictive? I'm like, well, yeah. But, and I was 
Looking mm. back, I was saying the party line. Right, you were the pusher. That that the uh, yeah. research was supposedly kind of saying yeah. what the FDA was saying, which we'll get into in a second, which was it's not likely to be addictive, essentially, yeah. if it is for legitimate pain. Yeah. If you're in legitimate pain and you take it, the chance of you becoming addicted is actually really low. That right. was the that was the right. party line, which of course it was not true. Because the the molecules know what your intentions are. <laughs> I know, right? It's so dumb. But, well, but I'm not I'm not trying to get addicted. Like the whole uh, what was it? Uh, partial addiction or something? They pseudo came up addiction. With pseudo addiction. Yeah. It's like, well, no, 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 no. I know that they are robbing convenience stores and uh, you know robbing from their parents, and I know that they're like. You know, coming in and running and trying to get the drugs by all means possible. They're not actually addicted. I know it seems that way. They're just pseudo addicted, right? Yeah, because they want the drugs. I, yeah, I know that's what addicts want. Yeah, I know, but they want them because they're in pain, right? <laughs> yeah, because that the whole pseudo addiction uh, lie was uh, just to reiterate what we we're saying is someone comes in for pain, they get prescribed the opioid, they need more and more to because they're tolerant over over time and as they're coming in asking for more and more they look like addicts <laughs> yeah who are drug seeking right but they're not actually addicted they're pseudo addicts meaning that they're not addicted they just look like an addict because they're actually trying to alleviate their pain that was the logic yes yeah it was ridiculous um, there's a south park episode about uh, undercover cop uh, it's it's an outrageous episode, but I love it. And the whole premise of the joke is how deep can you go undercover or what things can you do undercover before you're kind of no longer an undercover cop? So it's a similar thing. Like how much of an addict can you be before you're really an addict? You know, it's right. like... Yeah, and thank God she kept pushing back on me because uh, like that yeah. 4% number, she could have been one of those 4%. Yeah. Okay, so uh, very briefly, I want to kind of rattle off the what the documentary lays out, that we really had a perfect storm over the past 30 years that resulted in half a million people dying. Half a million. Yeah, that's crazy. Maybe more. And a lot of people's lives ruined, going to prison, uh, you know, all the accoutrement that come from addiction and yep. a life of addiction. So it was a perfect storm of a lot of different um, factors. One... You have a lot of people in pain. Yep. There's, a, you know, there's a lot of pain in the world, and then our culture of anti-pain, and that pain is bad. Then two is the pills. Uh, we uh, yeah. we have a we have a culture of pills. Yeah. Where when you have a problem, there's a pill. Yeah. And also patients wanting pills, which is another thing they didn't really talk about in the documentary was it. It doesn't take much, you know, when you have patient and physician both interested in pill as savior then you have a lot so it's not just the physicians or just right. the f big pharma it's there's a lot of patients going please give me pills i <laughs> so want relief i didn't understand this at first when i saw and then read american psycho and then it was also in uh, fight club because they would describe this ridiculous set of of drugs that each of them were on like especially in american psycho you'd be like well, I take this, that, and then this one is taking this, that, and the other thing. And I just, I kind of wrote it off as like, wow, that's exaggeration for the purpose of the book or, or the movie. Um, but then after having seen some of these things, and especially this documentary, I, I, I kind of get the sense that that was no exaggeration and that that's what happens, that people enter that world of, oh, I can 
alleviate a lot of my woes via these medicines. And if you say the right thing to your doctor, all of a sudden they can prescribe you a lot of these things. Yeah. And then you kind of, in a, in a sense, get addicted to getting more of these things. Right. And like, well, I take this one for this. I take this one for anxiety. I take this yeah. one for that. And right. The classic is I take this pill to give me energy and I take this pill to put me to sleep. Yeah, right. right. And if you took neither pill, you'd be okay. <laughs> you know, uh, not always. But anyway. uh, the third a- element that contributed to the perfect storm is capitalism without regulation. Yeah. So you have so much money to be made. I mean, the numbers they were throwing around are just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're handing out almost 4 million prescriptions a, a year, Jeez. and those prescriptions yeah. involve hundreds of dollars of meds, yeah. we're talking about a lot of money. Wait, I mean, didn't you say in 2016 there were 290 million? Like 390 million? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Like crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then you have advertisers getting better, and you have parties for prescribers and you know sales reps and all this stuff, because there's just so much money. Those and videos, I know those marketing videos. So I was, I thought of you because in your travels of your pseudo opioid job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, okay, the the, the hype stage shows. Look, full disclosure. So there was, a, let's call him a wizard. Let's say he lived in this like Emerald City, you know, Seattle, and there was this level of frustration because normal poppy fields can put humans to sleep but not robots, you know? And so we would have these conferences hyping up the new types of poppy fields that could get after 10 men or robots and things. And it was like that. It was these kinds of crazy over-the-top videos. But putting that as cool you've, it can be. You've been to these kinds of hype yeah, shows. Absolutely. How ridiculous are they? They're ridiculous. Yeah. And you make these little yeah. videos that are these very self-contained inside jokes within the community of your But of as, your a, as an employee... It's you, awkward. It's uh, it's it's embarrassing. It's, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Is it? Why do they do it then? Well, and and this is even a subculture within the subculture because these are the sales teams. Sales usually, and at least they used to be a lot more in. Um, well, anyways, in so, a sales so, organization, uh, you get it, commissions. Let me, right? let me. So for the for the yeah. listeners, if you haven't watched the documentary, they intersperse these hype videos where. Pe- you know, the sales reps are rapping about selling yep. Oxycontin and they're in these stage shows where they're doing like dance routines. to, And they're working the lyrics into the lyrics, things like fentanyl is my friend. They're doing raps or they're doing, you know, all sorts of different styles. Well, then they also have a song about titration, which is <laughs> this. And these are cover of a song. Yeah. These are these are sales reps who know nothing about medicine, by right. the way, have, or they don't have a medical degree yeah. that are working into their profits party, uh, you know, extravaganza, notions of, you know, down brainwash your prescribers to titrate, meaning go up, go, go up, go, go, up, up. Uh, go start low, but make sure you work your and, way and, up. And, and I don't. mean, it's getting the whole wrong lesson out of what's right, as they were explaining. Titration is meant to be like kind of the opposite, like start as low as you should, can, yeah. and maybe if you need to, go up. This yeah. was like, but let's go up. Let's yeah. keep going up. And of course, when you become tolerant, you will go up. You will go up. Right. Titrate, I'm down with titration. Yeah, that one guy was saying he was taking... 50, 50 pills yeah. of the highest, like one hundred and like twenty yeah, meg, milligrams or something. Like that I mean, he he said it. It took him like fifteen minutes just to just to take, take all them. those pills, you yeah. know. 
anyway, but yeah, so these these um, uh, pr- these hype <laughs> was just embarrassing to watch. So but. bad, and so I remember those in the nineties. There were a lot of those, mm-hmm. um, and like I said, you are within your little niche community of whatever business you're in industry. And then the sales organization is its own sub niche because they get paid commission. And so they have these very big rallies. Like I remember this a lot because not only would you have like a lot of the uh, events for the core company are usually more about what's the product, what's the latest thing. But on the sales organization, it's to really get everyone pumped up about going out in the field and getting those sales. Yeah, it's like religion. Yeah, yeah. Like so, like, these like Scientology, like, like getting people hyped up. That's right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I there, mean, was, it's, there was a part of the uh, documentary where the, the one guy was talking about, like, who are the most trustworthy people we can think of? And they were listing like nurses, doctors, and stuff. I was surprised they didn't make the point because on the bottom they said, you know, politicians. But salesperson, salespeople generally are also distrusted. That's why to them it's genius if they can get the doctors to do the selling for right, them. Right, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, side note, I talked about this recently in another episode with Bob that in the mid-90s, I was uh, the project manager of the market research effort to evaluate Bill Gates' uh, hype shows for Windows 95. Oh! oh. So this is... So you know about this world. Wow. So So this... Um, yeah, so Microsoft <laughs> hired my market research ter- uh, uh, firm. I was 24, just fresh yeah. out of college, and I was in charge of gathering the data. I I had to hire people, and, and then I analyzed the data and wrote the reports. And I actually designed the nice. survey and everything. And Wow. Yeah, there was lasers and smoke and music. And, Do you but, remember the song they, they licensed? Right. This is the famous one where Bill Gates is on stage with – the other CEOs and the, they're dorkily dancing around and stuff, right? That might be it. Oh yeah, I've seen the video of them dancing like that. I, that might be the one. Uh, but do you remember the? Oh yeah, because the the song was "Start Me Up." Yeah, it was Rolling it? Stones. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was a long time ago, but yeah. but um, but yeah, but I mean, but people liked it, you know, because at especially at the time, I mean, ninety ninety four ninety five Microsoft. I mean, it was like yeah. There was yeah. it was the company of the world, you know. And by I mean? the way, that's so. Speaking of sales organizations, so that was at a time where because nowadays companies like Microsoft, uh, Google, these kinds of companies, they when they have salespeople, there's mainly two categories. One is they either go to enterprises and say, "Hey, how many seats of this enterprise product are you going to buy?" Right, or they might go to stores like Walmart or something and say, hey, stock our hardware and things. But one thing that's not there very much anymore is the actual software boxes. But back in the 90s, that was all it was, right? You had these massive boxes. Do you remember how big the Office and Windows boxes were? Yeah. Office was like this humongous thing that came with this gigantic manuals and you really felt good about paying the 200 bucks for the product, right? Yeah. Well, those salespeople had to go and go around the country and around the world to get to move that product. Move an actual thing. Yeah. Yeah, like a hard copy of a thing. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is government. So you have pain. You have you have pain. People, a lot of people pain. You have pill culture. You have capitalism without regulation. And then you have government corruption. Lobbyists and kickbacks. Oh, that bill they were talking about where it was like, it was these, one of these classic 1984 names for a bill. Yeah. Like, the Family Protection Act, where yeah. we're removing kids and parents from each other. You know? Yeah. It's just... Right. The bill was essentially making it so that the government couldn't stop 
uh, big pharma from harming human beings. Yeah. Uh, or they but would it was have called something like the right for patients to choose or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. And the number five thing is brainwashing. So you will brainwash the public about the pain med. You and you minimize the the fact that it's addictive. You tell prescribers, and this is the genius of it. And they kind of went into this in the first episode: is that you tell the prescribers, and as a as a sales as a big pharma company, you believe this. It's what gets through the night. Is we're on a mission of altruism. Mm. These people are in pain. Yep. And you're not going to prescribe meds because you have some kind of hang up about it. Mm-hmm. You're going to you're going to deny a patient relief from their pain because you have some kind of reservation that's that's not even right. based on science. What's wrong with you? Right. Um, then you have a culture of evil drug addict culture, essentially. Like, well, these are good people. These are patients. They're not going to become addicted because they're not. They're not strung out on the streets. They're not some inner city kid that, you know, is prone to addiction. These are right. suburban white people. They're not going to have a problem with this sort of thing. Instead of uh, recognizing that anyone, if you give, um, you know, uh, opioids to anybody for a long enough time, they're going to become addicted. Yeah. Now, how easy they can get off of it, dependent on a lot of things, but... Uh, anyone can have a problem with drugs and alcohol, not just like the bad people, but that, you know, we still have that point of view. By the way, I, I've, um, another thing I've realized over the last nine months, I, in general, uh, you know, my dad was a doctor. He's a psychiatrist, but he, you know, he was a, an MD and uh, my stepdad as well. So I kind of grew up really with this ideal notion of, man, doctors, I mean, first of all, you go through so much schooling and, and they're generally really intelligent, and and they've they've really got this air of authority to them. And so I generally, you know, would always just like trust the doctor. You know, you just gotta like whatever they say, you gotta do it. Um, now, I'm not meaning to say that you know doctors don't have good intentions and things. It's just that in the last nine months, I've realized, oh, okay, well, first of all, there's doctors and there's doctors. But even in in, in addition to that, uh, a doctor is working, right? They're working. They're seeing patients. They have knowledge that they learned in school, and then they have to refresh that knowledge. They'll read this paper. They'll do this. But how diligent they are about that is it also varies widely, and how much. So when someone is in pain or has a disease and is smart and has the time and resources to look up information, a lot of times you can look up the actual recent papers being published, recent studies being published, and it becomes a little bit of a conflict where you go and you ask your doctor, hey, so I read about a study. And you're not even saying I read on Reddit. You know, you're saying I, I read a study with, you know, control, blah, 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 and it said this. What are your thoughts on that? And a lot of times the doctors won't know what the hell you're talking about. Right. And the good doctors say, oh, I'll send me the link. I'll, I'll let you know. The, the not-so-good doctors will say like, Oh, that's why I hate the internet. This is the advent of Wikipedia is the worst thing that could happen for, you know? Or they'll go <laughs> along with it without checking. Or with, yeah, exactly. Or worse, right? Like, yeah, sure. Maybe we shouldn't do it because yeah. you just told me about something you may or may not have read right. that may or may not be valid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I sort of get. I mean, I in my field of psychology, it's similar that there are so many reasons why people come into therapy yeah. and it's impossible for any one therapist to be an expert on all those things. Yeah. But we're expected to be an expert in all those things. And I think that there should be, uh, unfortunately for clinicians, because it might be a little bit more boring, is a more highly specialized 
clinicians, you know, like you specialize in trauma and all of your education (laughs) and all of your, you specialize in pain management. You specialize in anti-depression meds, you know, and I, I think with that, you would become expert. Anyway, um, other things that contributed to the problem in the past 30 years are bad physicians, corrupt prescribers, sloppy prescribers, addicted prescribers, um, you know, uneducated prescribers. Then you have... And the regulators, like that one guy who then got hired, is like, well, we didn't hire him right away. It was like, I don't know, a year or two. Remember, it's like he was a regulator. Someone, I think from oh, right. the FDA or something. And right. Well, I'll get into that in a second. <laughs> that That's a whole lot. That, that's my my main point that I'll end with. But anyway, also, you they covered up the deaths, the, right. you know, similar to the cigarette industry or yeah. the gasoline industry with you know, um, global uh, climate change, there's this yeah. uh, uh, capitalistic incentive to have a lot of press and quote-unquote science to back up the fact that, you know, pseudo-addiction is real and that only so many people are dying. Right. And then you have bad politicians, corrupt politicians, uneducated politicians, and all those things you add up and you have half a million dead and counting, by the way. Jeez. So here's my main point that needs to change. So I'm not an expert on this, but the little bit I understand about how our uh, system works is that capitalism can, there's pros and cons. And one of the cons is that without regulation, we have problems like this. And you can't, in my view, expect a capitalistic system to produce altruistic companies. That's just not how things work. So... Capitalistic, a capitalist, uh, you know, a cap, a system based on capitalism will produce companies based on capitalism, which is based on wealth acquisition and market uh, power. And you get the good parts about it, which are people very motivated to innovate. Right. And you get the baggage. Right. So you give them enough freedom to innovate and make money to sustain themselves, but you also watch so that the greater good of the consumer and the country and of the company itself, because if big pharma is going to blow themselves out of existence by corruption, then that doesn't do anyone any good. So, or, or, you know, in the gasoline industry, if we're going to destroy our planet, there's not going to be anyone left to buy gasoline. So... Uh, let's all you know think about this. Um, this is an argument I frequently have with my libertarian friends, which is that there is a, per, a perception of hey, or an idea that hey, if we just let for full blown, unrestricted, free market capitalism go, it will work and it'll be fine. Yeah, and it's literally it's never like happened. Never happened. It, and the <laughs> examples of the times in history in our country where there was sort of that going on, it led to disastrous abuses. Right. You know, and it's like. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't have to look far. I mean, Amazon, all these, there's a lot of problems. And that's with regulations. Right. Like, that's, you know. With some regu- regulations, with some, right. Yeah, but. So, so what needs to happen, we have a an agency, federal agency, that is supposed to have put an end to all of this from the beginning. Right. It's called the Food and Drug Administration. Yep. The problem is, is that this organization is hamstrung by lack of funds and uh, Congress from both sides of the aisle hampering their ability to regulate to the point where 
in the United States right now, not only with opioids, but with all sorts of pseudoscientific treatments that are being uh, you know, marketed to people as if they will help you when they will not. We have such a problem when we have scientists who are working for FDA going, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a, yeah, uh, opioid. Yeah, that's a problem. But we can't do anything <laughs> about it because Congress won't let us yeah. and we're not funded enough to be, we, we, we would have to have so many agents in the field doing sting operations, yeah. blah, 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 or working with local, uh, you know, um, law enforcement agencies. And there's no oversight on the oversight. So then you have the small, I'm, I'm hoping slash expecting, percentage of FDA people that then are corrupt on top of that. Right. And then join the private sector. Right. They're not being paid enough. And then you have this FDA officer who ends up being hired by the Sackler family who then tells, and oh, no, no. So what happened was, and so this is, this was the most egregious corruption yeah. because when I think of the FDA, I think of them as like heroes. I think of them as yeah. like the um, who was the guy that got Al Capone? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. What was that guy's yeah. name? Oh man, from the Untouchables. Yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, that guy, um, the Attorney General, dude. Yeah, actually, not the Attorney General, right? The God, the, the, the guy in charge of going after him. Gosh darn, Untouchable. Kevin uh, Costner. Yeah, Untouchables. <laughs> uh, he plays. Um, Oh, good. Elliot. Yeah. Elliot Ness? Elliot Ness. Elliot Ness. Nice. I didn't have to look it up. You said it. (laughs) Um, I consider these guys to be heroes. You know, they're out there trying to protect us. They're those feds that you want in your corner, but they're they're so um, restricted and unable to do anything that they essentially are doing nothing. Yeah. Or very, very little. And we have... Congress that are paid for by Big Pharma to not do anything for FDA. And then you have these do-gooders in the FDA are just like, please let us do something. And then Congress says no. And then the Big Pharma pays them money. And then then we pay Big Pharma because we're being tricked by the government and by FDA. And anyway, but going back to to the most egregious thing was you have the FDA agent who meets with the Meets with the the big pharma people to design their essentially handcraft their approval. Right. So <laughs> it, it's pretty clear that yeah. what happened was big pharma went to this FDA guy and they said, "If you write an approval for us, it's a government stamp on yeah. the safety of our drug, and, and we'll, good things could happen. And we'll we'll wait a year and then we'll give you a sweet job for four hundred three hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, th- which is what happened." Yep. So they, but they waited a year. Kurt. Yeah. So they essentially paid off this government employee to uh, write on the label that it was safe when it wasn't safe, and then that w- started the whole thing. Yep. And uh, and he goes from I mean that's part of the discrepancy, right? Because an FDA job pays what eighty grand maybe, right? <laughs> you know? And so this documentary really vilifies. The capitalists, yeah, which I find to be fine, but you've got to pile on ten times more, a hundred times more of your vilification of the government. The government yeah. is for the people, yep. yep, and we forget that because they're not often for the people. Yeah, they are our elected officials. They're supposed to be watching out for us. They are supposed to be 
not biased towards corporations. They're supposed yeah. to be biased towards the people. They're supposed to say, huh, we have a problem here. Maybe we should bolster the FDA, give them some power, give or some the DEA or someone power. And we should not push for bills that limit that their power. Ability. Because we're getting, uh, and, you know, everyone around us are getting paid by Big Pharma and yeah. we're putting our kids through college. Yeah. And that's the definition of corruption right there. And a half a million and counting dead because of that. Yeah. It's the crime of the century. Well, that's a, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.